Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, composer Michael Shapiro is interviewed by LA Opera's Senior Director of Artistic Programs, Joshua Winograd. Together, they discuss Michael's atmospheric and original score for Frankenstein. Come see composer Michael Shapiro conduct his new score to this 1931 masterpiece of horror at the Ace Theater, performed by the LA Opera Orchestra on October 28th and 29th. I'm Michael Shapiro, composer and conductor, and very happy to be on this podcast of LA Opera. Hi, Michael. I'm Josh Winograd, Senior Director of Artistic Programs for LA Opera. It's a real thrill for us to be able to have this time to sit and talk with you, and we're very excited about the upcoming performances of your Frankenstein at the Ace Hotel in October, Halloween time. Oh, so am I, big time. Thank you. I, I was hoping before we got to that project, I was hoping to um, just have you tell our viewers a little bit about your background. I'm particularly fascinated by the New Yorker through and through part of it. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I've been around music all my life. Um, my father, Sam, was uh, a klezmer, a high Yiddish clarinet. And he studied with the great Dave Terrace, who was the master of all clarinetists of that kind. I grew up surrounded by jazz and Broadway and symphonic world. My dad introduced me to many of the jazz greats that he knew personally. He grew up with Ella. <laughs> he knew Buck Clayton very well. We went to concerts with Coleman Hawkins, Louis Armstrong several times, Stan Kent, and it's a long list. But he also uh, introduced me, and so did my uncle Charlie, who was a great violinist and a dentist in the Bronx, to great music at Carnegie Hall and at the old Met and then the new Met. So, you know, I had relationships with Leopold Stokowski and uh, Aaron Copeland. I mean, real relationships. I knew these people. And Otto Rubinstein, uh, Nathan Milstein, Gillels. I mean, it's a long list. It's an incredible time to be growing up in New York City with no all those question. Legends. And, you know, seeing Lenny all the time and getting to see him. And, uh, oh, there's so many. And then all the Broadway shows, you know, that we went to. You ended up doing all of your education also in, in, in New York City, right? Yeah, it's Columbia and Juilliard. Yeah. And Manus. I, I went to Manus while I was at Columbia. But my I mean, education has been in the pit of opera houses and orchestra, orchestra you know, concert halls throughout Europe and uh, the UK and here in Canada, and uh, very practical training. And you mentioned being introduced to music through your father. I'm also fascinated by the role that Jewishness has played in your, not just in your scholarly pursuits, but also in your composition. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Half of my music is centered about or inspired by my background. My background's from Eastern Europe. My mother was born in the Ukraine and they fled in 1920 from the Bolsheviks. Here we are again, 102 years later, going through the same craziness. And uh, my dad's family is from the same area as Isaac Bishava Singer, the south part of Poland. All of that was great influence on me, no question about it. The music of that place connected to the music of jazz and George Gershwin and Aaron Copeland and Ellie Siegmeister and all those people that I knew, Broadway, of course, and the Met. I went to the Met right at the beginning. I heard Anthony and Cleopatra on the radio when it opened the Met. I mean, I go way back there. So, and then I worked at the Zurich Opera House after the Juilliard. I mean, I've been around. And then a lot of years as a symphonic conductor doing the standard run. And then in these days, conducting mostly my stuff, 
all over the place from Italy and UK to here so forth. You've written such a variety of music from orchestral to opera, which we'll talk about in a second, and et cetera, et cetera. And you've also written a lot for the voice in the form of song cycles and art song. What is it about coming up through the jazz tradition, musical theater tradition, classical tradition? What is it for you that's so special about writing for the voice? First, I'm a literary person. Um, I was an English major at Columbia College. Uh, but I've always read all the great novels and all the great literature, philosophy books, and so forth, poetry. When I started studying with Ellie Siegmeister, who was a great American composer and friend of Copeland and studied and student of Boulanger, he said to me, don't go for the big forms yet. He said, why don't you write songs? So I proceeded to write about a hundred of them, only about a third of them I, I, I published, but you know, Aaron had said that he was not a, a major songwriter, as we know, he was an instrumental writer, but he said when he wrote the Emily Dickinson songs that he's, 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 he said that certain poetry has in it melody, sometimes overwhelming melody, like in Shakespeare, which is, makes it almost impossible to set music to. But there is certain poetry that has kind of a melodic line in it that you can find and then you can adapt. So my songs very much started me in that direction. And then I've coached all the major operas uh, from all the great composers from Mozart on and uh, know how they work in, on the stage, uh, you know, and moving people across the stage. Let's talk a little bit about Frankenstein specifically. Yeah. Frankenstein, of course, is a score, an original score that you composed by you. And it is in, in performance, it is intended to be played live um, conducted and played live during screening of the famous Boris Karloff uh, Frankenstein from the early 30s. Tell us about finding that film and about conceiving of its need of a fresh musical score. You know, Leonard Maltin in his book on film says that the original film, which is a talking film, 1931, is creaky, badly in the, in the need of a film score. Well, I grew up watching it on something called Million Dollar Movie, which is a, a local Channel 9 broadcast, which used to show movies like eight times a week, you know, when, as a kid. So I remember watching the, the Universal horror films, and in particular Frankenstein with my brother Barry in Brooklyn, where I grew up. And my dad came in, it was like four o'clock in the afternoon, somehow he'd gotten home from his job as a court reporter at the Brooklyn Supreme Court. And he said, you're not watching that film. I said, why? He says, it's impossible. I saw it when I was 13. I said, Dad, when? In 1931, I was 13. And I couldn't sleep for a week. You had nightmares. This was so frightening. When the monster turns around, that face hits everyone. He saw it like at the Brooklyn Paramount for five cents, you know. Well, it stayed with me. And all the original Universal films stayed with me big time. The original Frankenstein, opposed to Bride of Frankenstein, which has a score by Franz Waxman, the original film has no score. It has some music that was filmed, but they hadn't had the technology yet to have two soundtracks, one for the talking and one for special effects and for music. 1933, King Kong is the first time that Max Steiner wrote a symphonic through composed film score. Well, when the Jacob Burns Film Center opened up in Pleasantville, New York, and that Jacob Burns Film Center was an affiliate of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. 
So I went to see the, the, the proprietor of that, Steve Apcon, who created it, is a great guy. And we, we were talking, talking about a collaboration with the Chappaqua Orchestra. And I said to him, how about I write the film score to Frankenstein? He said, Frankenstein? I said, yeah, you know, yeah, the 31 films got no music. I said, do it. So seven weeks later, I wrote the score very mm -hmm. quick. And since that debut in 2002, October, Halloween of 2002, we had two performances at the Burns Center, sold out. It's gone on to over 50 performances in its instrumental version, purely instrumental, played live with the film. I even recorded the overture with the great City of Birmingham Symphony in the UK, Simon Rattle and Andres Nelson's old band. And I've done it in Italy, in Germany, in Norway, I opened the Bergen Festival. It's all in the instrumental version. It's been converted into a chamber orchestra version, a full orchestra version, like I did with Virginia and Charleston and other places. And it's been done in a wind ensemble version by the Dallas Winds at the um, Meyerson Symphony Center in Dallas. But this is, this in LA will be uh -huh. the world premiere. World premiere. Of the, you want to tell them? Opera version. It's called Frankenstein Live. I call it Frankenstein the Movie Opera. Why? Because it's now with five singers, the LA Opera Orchestra and the movie. Five singers. Wait a minute. Michael, are you out of your mind? It's an English talking film. It's alive. It's alive. Arr! How can you have a libretto? Every time he says it's alive, the, the, the singers go, yes, he's alive. No, 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 no. So I had this thought. You and I were talking about this a while back. And I said, well, I just don't want it to do the instrumental version in LA. I want to figure out something else. So, of course, Eureka, in the middle of the night, I got the idea. The movie starts with a burial scene in which a priest is intoning, et lux perpetuate amen. What, what's that? It's kind of a, bapti, a bastardized version of the requiem. Requiem. So that's the text of the, the, the text of the operatic version is five singers singing text derived from the traditional Latin requiem. Yeah. So let's just show some examples. After that burial scene, Dr. Frankenstein, Colin Clive and Fritz, Dwight Fry dig up a grave and take out the freshly buried coffin of someone of whom the priest had just intoned. They look perpetuate amen. And they put it on a cart and then they go up a hill. And then you see a hanging man where they're going to cut down, take his brain. Well, as the cart, you know, the coffin goes up on the cart, I have orchestral music I had in the earlier versions that went, well, that's the orchestral version. However, in the new vocal version, the new opera version, they go, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie I mean, it works. Now, why the Latin Requiem Mass and this movie? Isn't that a bit sacrilegious? Well, I don't think it really is, because the Latin Requiem Mass is all about resurrection. And what is Frankenstein about? Resurrection. It's fascinating. I'm also fascinated by the fact that when you look at the history of film scores, and of course, as you said, that wasn't a thing until later that decade, film scores in the middle of last century is tied so deeply with the legendary composers that were blacklisted by the Third Reich and that were deemed this Antarctica musique, this degenerate 
um, music. And so many of those composers ended up having success in Hollywood. Is there any tie there for you, given your background and, and interest in classical composers and, and Jewish composers and the impossible impossibility of extracting that from cinema score history? It's a great question. I mean, we always, of course, think of Korngold, Castelnuovo Tedesco, you know, Franz Waxman. I mean, these are heroes of mine. Uh, Castelnuovo Tedesco, for example, taught John Williams and Andre Previn and Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, these are major figures. And of course, Schoenbeck tried to become a film composer, but wanted to, you know, control too much. <laughs> he couldn't get a job. No, I don't know if they, if they were influenced. I'm I'm a movie buff. These are all heroes of mine. You know what has been of great influence to in me, frankly, is my operatic background, because what is happening in a movie? It's just like an opera. It's a staged play in a way, but in a film. Characters are moving across an action scene. So Josh, you and I now are friends over many years, but when I first met you, I would say that our music between us was formal. But now that if I was to write music of this underneath this conversation, it would be friendship music. It would be music for people who understand each other and that care for each other, you know? So the music's different. So when people are moving across the stage in the film, I have music that is dramatic music. I had this conversation with Steve Sondheim once where we talked about absolute music versus dramatic music. And dramatic music is very different. It was in the minds of Steve Sondheim, because when he looked at my songs, he says, I really don't know how to do that. I know how to do it in a dramatic setting. That's fascinating. So in terms of the experience for people who are having maybe a difficult time truly envisioning what, what will happen when they arrive at the theater and when the lights go down, talk a little bit about what it means to be watching a movie and an orchestral performance at the same time. Initially, you'll see me conducting the overture. Then the movie will start. I don't come in right away. And then I start to come in and they're digging up the grave. And in a matter of a minute or two later, the audience will stop seeing the orchestra. And they'll start think, thinking and hearing it and seeing it as one big mixed thing. Because the screen will be hovering above the orchestra. Yes. It's that plus it becomes one artistic experience. This is an old film, talking though, not, not Metropolis, not a silent film, Caligari, it's a talking movie. So I have to write film music that goes in and out of the action and doesn't impose itself on it. I think that's what the people have told me that said, we forgot that you were there because we were just taking it all in at once. So what people will see when they come there is I want to scare the daylights out of them with my music. And I also want them to get an, a, a dimension added to the film that wasn't there before. You know, what's going on in Dr. Frankenstein, Henry Frankenstein's mind, ethos, and creating this thing that then turns on everybody, but does it? You know, what's in the mind of the monster? Karloff is a genius in his performance to break out role for him. Well, my music, I wanted to amplify. I want to mention one other thing which is very important about this. I did not have the luxury of working with James Whale in this film. Of course, he died in the 50s. If I work now on a film, I'd spot it with the director. And we talk about, you know, the segments and how to do this and that, or TV, which I've done. Work with the music engineer, blah, blah, blah. Here, I, I had no luxury of that. I had to watch the film a gazillion times and figure out dramatically what's happening in each scene. 
so that I can amplify it, you know, do, do my shtick as it were to make it just so much more rich. Well, it's interesting that you say that because we have this annual film-based project at the theater at the Ace Hotel at Halloween time. Right. It has featured and produced such such incredible pairings of musical composition with existing films. And, you know, as you said, this this body of work of films that either doesn't yet have music or in, in many cases doesn't even yet have dialogue is all pre-1935, pre-19... Pretty much. Yeah. And a lot of the films that composers are attracted to from even earlier than that um, have no dialogue at all. So I'm curious, what's it like writing for a film that does have dialogue? How do you deal with the timing of when to, you know, back off so that people can hear the spoken lines? Great question. And it's totally relevant because as we're talking now, you don't want too much music to come in between. But for example, Josh, you asked a question, then you stopped, I listened, right? Well, maybe there could have been something that, you know, something in between that kind of characterized what you said. And then when I said this, maybe there's some more music that just interceded itself. So we go in and out. And I had to be very careful of it. I overrode at the premiere. I wrote too much music. We then took it on the road where I played piano in Boston and all kinds of places. And I started to go slash cut, slash cut, which is very, very useful. And it really helped. So I got it to the point where it's very, very, very sharp. And it works. You don't even know I'm there, but you do. My whole goal, Josh, is to get under the listener's skin. And so now talk about adding singers, which is now new voices, and how that works with the dialogue. Totally correct. Well... The orchestral part has not changed. It's exactly the same orchestral part as in all the instrumental versions. But when I added the singers being a, a vocal composer, a person who's written, you know, operas and song cycles and choral works, it was very easy for me. I mean, I went and I looked at where do the words work in the scene? So, for example, there's a little girl scene in which she plays with the monster at the lake. She doesn't know he's bad. And they throw flowers into the lake and so forth. Well, there I have a soprano singing over my orchestration, Agnus Dei Peccata Mundi, Lamb of God, because that's what she is. So the words of the Latin Requiem Mass inform the scene. They are tied to it. It's not randomly done, like the Kyrie at the beginning. When the Mass is created, dies ire, dies ila, which you know very much from the Verdi Requiem. <laughs> You know, of course, day of wrath. My God, look what he's doing. Dead parts, making a creature out of it. Like any good opera, the libretto has to inform the action. And then the music has to inform the libretto. What would you say are some of the challenges or benefits in working on something in which the creators are not still around? Oh, God, I wish they were around. I did have a connection with Boris Karloff. When I was 10, I wrote a letter to him, Boris Carl of Hollywood, California. I was 10 years old, 1961. <laughs> and I, you know, I, it was a fan letter because I used to watch a show he had TV on TV called Thriller, where he did the introduction, like, like Alfred Hitchcock had a similar show at the time. And I wrote, I said, Mr. Karloff, I love you. I think you're a thriller. Can I have your autograph? <laughs> Basically, 10-year-old letter. Do you know I got a response from his house? And he have said, it? I have it. I have I have a picture. Uh, he sent me two photographs, one signed Boris Karloff, 
And the other one, a picture of the monster. These are two photographs, old school black and white, which he must have had for like who knows how many years. And on the envelope was his home address. He hand wrote it and mailed it to me with a stamp. That's great stuff. But again, just to give you an, an honest answer, it, it's a problem. I mean, look, I could not spot the movie, as I mentioned before, with James Whale. I couldn't do it. So I had to I had to use my operatic sense and my sense as a as a vocal writer to figure this out. And it wasn't that difficult for me because I'm such a fan. And I want to make fans of the people who haven't seen it. A lot of people think they've seen Frankenstein, but they've only seen excerpts. They've never seen it straight through. And in the process of doing this, I found out that the movie is on the American Film Institute, the AFI list of top 100 films of all time. Frankenstein for the Ace Theater, presented by the LA Opera, is the great kahuna. It's the greatest horror movie ever made, I think. And I know most of them. My, my daughter certainly watches all of them. Well, that's an incredible endorsement. We're so thrilled and so excited for this project. I can't wait to see you in L.A. And on behalf of, of all of us here at L.A. Opera, I just want to thank you so much for your time and for this incredible work that we're going to present in October at the Theater at the Ace Hotel here in L.A. So looking forward to it. Me too. Come see composer Michael Shapiro conduct his new score to this 1931 masterpiece of horror at the Ace Theatre, performed by the LA Opera Orchestra on October 28th and 29th. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.